We are back speaking with author James DiEugenio about his book, Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. Let's talk about the fact that uh, right. uh, there were critics of the Warren Commission that came out in the late 60s. Uh, there was a big battle of public opinion that went back and forth. Uh, then, of course, Watergate came about. People were taking a harder look at the intelligence agencies, the Pike Committee, the Church Committee. There was a Rockefeller Commission. Nixon, Nixon gets impeached over Watergate. There's a whole different attitude in the country about, uh, about our government and, and things that get covered up. And I just want to make passing mention of this. About 1975, I guess it was, a man named Robert Groden takes a, uh, a bootleg copy of the Zapruder film, and he, he shows it on late-night television thanks to Geraldo Rivera. The, the nation had never seen this as a film, and when they take a look at it where it appears, it appears on film that the president's being knocked backwards by what appears to be a shot from the front. There's a huge national outcry. This leads to another investigation by the House Select Committee, which, which you're talking about, and of course, um, they do dig up a lot of fascinating stuff. You made mention of the, the, the Lopez report uh, before this, and you did a chance to speak to Eddie Lopez, and I just wanted to ask about that report, and it's something I didn't know until I read your book, that there's still one part of it that, in spite of the Records Review Board, still hidden, which was a chapter titled, Was Oswald Part of the CIA? So talk a bit about the Lopez report. It, it, was, it was titled, Was Oswald an Agent of the CIA? And when I interviewed Eddie Lopez, up in New York, you know, I, I showed him, um, Eddie, you allude to this annex was Oswald an agent of the CIA, but I don't see it in the report. So he got a puzzled <laughs> look on his face. He grabbed a report from me. He started shuffling through all the pages, and he said, it's not there. It's gone. <laughs> then he kind of recovered himself. He handed a report back to me, you know, and he said, they always hated that part. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, if I was them, I would have hated it, too. <laughs> well, I, I would say, of all the things that need to be released, that probably is pretty, pretty high up on the list of things we'd like to get our yeah, hands on. Yeah, I, I would say so. And so the, the Lopez report was over 300-page report uh, put together by Dan Hardway and Eddie Lopez about Oswald's alleged trip to Mexico City. In my opinion, nothing shows how bad the Warren Commission was than if you compare their report on Mexico City with the Lopez report on Mexico City. Right. It's literally night and day. To go through the entire Lopez report and elucidate all the things that they came up with, you know, that shows so many questions about the accepted version of Oswald's trip to Mexico City, which is in the Warren Report. We could spend three hours talking about the Lopez Report, and I'm not exaggerating at all. In front of both the Cuban consulate and the Russian consulate, the CIA had a battery of cameras, so they would catch everybody going in and everybody going out. Right. Some of these cameras were so technically advanced that they were light-sensitive. In other words... If a human body obstructed the light coming outside the door of the embassy, the camera shutter would click. That's how advanced these cameras were. Mm -hmm. You know. Now, if you follow what the what the uh, the Warren Commission says, Oswald had a grand total of five visits to both embassies, which means ten total going in and coming out. Not one <laughs> picture of Oswald coming in or going out 
has the CIA ever produced. Now, I think most logical people would agree, since this was so important to the indictment of Oswald, as Jim Garrison once said, if the CIA had a picture of Oswald going into the Russian embassy, it would have been on the front cover of the one report. So this is a very serious question. Why have they never been able to produce a photograph? You know, if Oswald was there. You know? Now, the other thing is, the Warren Report never listed the actual languages used by Oswald, you know, as he was supposedly talking in the Russian and the Cuban consulate. Yes. All right? Well, the Lopez Report does list them. And when you see this, which is actually, it's a table in the, in the Lopez Report. Uh-huh. Anybody who knows this case is taken aback because it says that Oswald spoke fluent Spanish and broken Russian. <laughs> now, if you go ahead and talk to the people who knew Oswald in the Marines and back in Dallas-Fort Worth, you'll see that it's exactly the opposite, that Oswald spoke very good Russian and lousy Spanish. <laughs> so this is all adds up to the question, who the heck is this guy? Who is this guy they are talking about? Because it's not Oswald. Apparently not. Well, you, as I started to talk in my prelude to this, Jim Garrison was suspicious about, uh, about that uh, Mexico City visit, uh, probably ahead of the curve of anybody else. We need to, to, be- to backtrack, to go back, to ask the question of what the hell was a district attorney in New Orleans doing getting involved in the Kennedy case? And, of course, the book uh, points out, and Oliver Stone's movie points out, he, he actually stumbled into it very early on. Can you kind of tell how, how Garrison got involved? What had happened is that after uh, Kennedy's assassination, a man named Jack Martin, who was associated with Guy Bannister, you know, who was one of the residents of the famous address, 544 Camp Street. Right-wing, private eye, operating out of New Orleans. Right. Connected to the right. former FBI agent, connected to the CIA, investigating leftist right. groups. Bannister. Bannister, on the day of the assassination, uh, actually assaulted Jack Martin and beat him up pretty badly. You know, because Bannister was so angry at him. Bannister was so supposedly upset because Martin made some comments about seeing some strange things going on in his office that summer. Well, what happened is Martin was so hurt by this that he started making some phone calls. One of these phone calls was to a guy named Herm Coleman, who was an assistant DA for Jim Garrison. And he said to Coleman, you know, this Oswald guy was associated with David Ferry in the summer of 1963 in New Orleans. And so this message was then relayed to Garrison. Garrison calls Ferry in for questioning. Ferry's answers do not make a whole lot of sense. He talks about, you know, we went uh, goose hunting in Texas. And so he says, well, um, Dave, why would you drive through a thunderstorm to go goose hunting in Texas with no shotguns? You know, and, <laughs> and so Barry's answers were not very convincing. So Garrison turns him over to the FBI. Garrison actually worked for the FBI, thinking that the FBI would do a thorough and professional investigation. 
Well, as I note in my book, this is not what happened. It is very clear if you look at Ferry's um, interrogation by the FBI, the guy lied his head off throughout the entire report. And, for instance, he said that he had never uh, been associated with Oswald at any time, even in the Civil Air Patrol, Mm -hmm. which is a lie. He also said that he had never even handled any kind of military rifle, you know, to the, during the Bay of Pigs, uh-huh. when in fact he was a trainer. And he said he wouldn't even know how to handle one. <laughs> Ferry's lying his head off here. He was not just involved in the Bay of Pigs, he was also involved in Mongoose, you know, the secret war against Castro. Okay, in 1962. Jim, can I stop you for a minute here? Because when Gerald Posner wrote his book, Case Closed, and he was telling everybody about, oh, there's nothing to any of this, and this whole idea that Oswald knew Ferry, it's ridiculous. He was talking at some point, and I guess researcher John Newman, in the meantime, a photo showing Ferry and Oswald at a cookout when Oswald's a teenager surfaces. Newman has it blown right. up, and while Posner's up there telling everybody about how there's no suspicious <laughs> connection, behind him is a giant photo showing the two men at the same place at the same time. Yeah, that was absolutely priceless. So that, obviously Ferry did know Oswald. Yeah. So the point is, as I write in my book, if the FBI was really interested in the Kennedy case, Ferry would have been indicted because, as you probably know, it's a crime to lie to an FBI agent when he's doing an investigation. They should have indicted him, yeah. but they didn't. And this is one of the telltale hints that Hoover and the FBI was not really interested. Well, I'm sure you know, Kennedy's killed on a Friday. Hoover was at the racetrack on Saturday. <laughs> that tells you how interested <laughs> he was in finding out who killed Kennedy. Well, uh, let's let's talk about a bit about that whole office. Guy Bannister, David Ferry. I mean, a lot of weird stuff was going on. You mentioned the weekend of the assassination. As far as I recall from reading Harold Weisberg's book, they knew that there was a connection between Lee Oswald and Bannister and, and Ferry and the rest of these people. By Monday after the assassination, they have Bannister on the phone, and they're asking him about this office, which they know... They know this is a suspicious office because Oswald has pamphlets with the address on them that he passed out in New Orleans. They're asking Bannister, what about that? And the way they, as you point out in the book, they, the way it's filed originally, you have no way of knowing what this is all about. What's this about? What's this connection about? But it turns out researchers find out, Weisberg, you and others find out later that, um, well, it's because the same office, the same suite supposedly Oswald was occupying, had previously been occupied by a CIA-affiliated, rabidly anti-Castro group when Oswald's supposed to be pro-Castro. The whole thing stinks, and this was really buried for years, only only uncovered uh, some years later by Garrison. What, what you're referring to is that the FBI guys in New Orleans had to have known who Guy Bannister was. They had to have known the significance of 544 Camp Street on Oswald's flyers, okay, which are actually in the Warren Commission, ended up being in the Warren Commission. And I, I proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that they did know, and they tried to cover this up. Right. Because they understood that the obvious question in the minds of the public would be, wait a minute, if this guy is supposed to be a communist, what on earth is he doing? in the office of this rabid right-wing guy, Guy Bannister, who's so far to the right that he's meeting with Ku Klux Klan guys. 
down in New Orleans. Yeah. This makes absolutely no sense. You know, the only way it makes sense, of course, is that Oswald is a fake communist. Yeah. Right? And that's what the case really was. So the FBI knew about this, and beyond what I just mentioned, the 544 Camp Street address on Oswald's flyers, there's also the fact that Bannister was not just affiliated with the FBI, but he had very strong associations with the Central Intelligence Agency, and he helped out in both the Bay of Pigs operation and in Mongoose. And one of the people that he was clearly associated with is Sergio Arcacha-Smith, who's actually the head of the Cuban Revolutionary Council in New Orleans, an association that was set up by Howard Hunt, you know, for the Bay of Pigs operation. It was a way to organize the Cuban exiles into a so-called political group. And there is no doubt, as you just mentioned, that Bannister was very much associated with Smith because they actually shared a building together. Right. So they had to have known each other. Right. Now, beyond that, there's a lot of evidence that the two FBI agents on the Cuban beat in New Orleans, Warren DeBreeze and Regis Kennedy, were so close to Bannister that they were actually in his office. So what you're saying here about Harold Weisberg's book, there is no doubt in my mind, or anybody who's re- very well-versed in this case, that within 48 hours of the assassination, the FBI knew, A, who Guy Bannister was, B, who Sergio Arcacha-Smith was, C, that they knew each other, and D, that Oswald was in their midst in that summer of 1963. And then they completely papered it over, covered it up, whitewashed it, whatever word you want to use, so they would not appear in the Warren Commission volumes. Well, Garrison takes a look at this whole case again uh, in, in, I guess, what, 66. He starts getting interested in it again. And, and actually, what, what, what did Perk his interest again back in 66? It actually goes back a little bit earlier than that, when he read Dwight McDonald's article in Esquire in 1965. Okay. And he showed it to, to John Bolts, one of the assistant DAs. Then in 1966, he's um, on a trip with Senator Russell Long, all right, and he brings it up, and Russell Long says, well, Jim, I looked into this, and there's no way in the world that Oswald could have killed Kennedy, all right? And so Garrison then starts going ahead and ordering all the Warren Commission volumes. Uh-huh. He, he, by the way, he actually ended up having three copies. Huh. There was one in his office, there was one at his home, and there was one in his car. Okay, so, you know, because he, he was a DA, he had a guy driving his car, you know. And so he would read them literally all the time, you know, to the wee hours of the morning. As he once said in his, in, his Playboy interview, the only way you can believe the Warren Report <laughs> is not to read it. Because I think right. most people have this experience. When you read the Warren Report and then you read the volumes, you understand that there's a big disconnect. Yeah. Between what they said yeah. happened and what actually did happen. Exactly. Let's talk about the fact that it's 60, okay, it's 66, uh, Garrison's back in the case. He decides to look up this, this curious character, David Ferry, once again. And I don't know where you were in February of 67, but I can remember being electrified by the news coming out of New Orleans that the DA down there was going to look into the Kennedy case because there had been a lot of national controversy about what went down at this point. And uh, his leading suspect in the case, David Ferry, surfaces, 
And uh, he's a guy that, you know, as, as we, we just talked about, certainly has connections to Oswald, connections to Bannister, does suspicious things in the day of the assassination. A curious character, to be sure. His name surfaces, and within a couple of days, he is dead. And next to his corpse are two, this is one of my favorite parts of the case, two typed suicide notes that are unsigned. His death is ruled to be of natural causes. It's like the comedy relief of this case. To say that that was a controversial ruling <laughs> is, I believe, a, a kind of an understatement, all right? Um, because the coroner kept on pushing the time of death back and back, okay? Uh, he could not have died before 4 a.m. Then a reporter, George Lardner, says, wait a second, I was with him at 4 a.m., okay? And he says, well, that was the very latest time, <laughs> you know, that he could have passed away at. There's been a lot of controversy about actually how Ferry passed away. I, you know, I'm not saying that I know how he died, okay? <laughs> but I'm just saying because of the timing. Jim, Jim, I'd have to ask you and any of our listeners, have they ever heard of a guy writing two suicide notes, laying down and then dying promptly of natural causes? Right. I, I'm not aware right. of any. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a rather remarkable coincidence, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. You know? <laughs> so, you know, I would say that there are some serious questions about this. The exposure of Garrison's investigation had just happened a few days before. Right. Well, let, let's talk about something I know that you have a, a lot of firsthand experience with. Uh, Clay Shaw was certainly not a, a perhaps a, a terribly central figure to what was going down, but he definitely was found to be associated with Oswald in a very suspicious way. He had some, some shadowy connections to this case. Garrison goes ahead with what case he has, which is against Clay Shaw. He doesn't manage to, 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 to prove his case, but you went down to, uh, to Louisiana, I know, at one point to track down some, some very credible witnesses that uh, Garrison uh, dug up that show that, you know, Clay Shaw clearly had some connections to Oswald, and I know that you can, uh, you can speak to that directly, having talked to some of these people. One of the most famous incidents that has been pretty much verified is the so-called Clinton-Jackson incident. This was an event that took place the late summer of 1963, in which Shaw, Ferry, and Oswald are seen in these two hamlets about, I'd say, about 90 minutes north of New Orleans. There are so many witnesses, credible witnesses, some of whom I interviewed, that to me it simply can't be denied today that this event happened. In its connotations, it's very, very suggestive, because the visit begins with Oswald at a barber shop in the hamlet of Clinton. Goes in, gets a haircut, and asks the guy if there's any jobs available. And McGehee, the barber, one of the guys I talked to, says, well, you might try this hospital east. It's a, uh, a mental hospital. And he, he noted that Oswald seemed very surprised when he said that. Uh -huh. Okay. Then he recovered himself, got out of the chair, thanked him, and McGee heard the car drive away. But before he left, he said, Reeves Morgan might be able to help you. He's a friend of mine, and he's a local state legislator. He might be able to pull some connections. Mm -hmm. So where is Oswald seen next? He's seen at Reeves Morgan House that evening. His son, Van Morgan, sitting in the front yard, sees this big black Cadillac pull up. This tall guy with a shock of white hair is at the wheel. So he thinks it's a, 
this Oswald guy must be really important. Mary Morgan, Reeve's daughter, is running around the house. I interviewed her. She told me, yeah, it was Oswald. I'll never forget it. And so he asked Reeves, well, how do you think I can get a job there? And he goes, well, I'd probably register to vote first to prove that you live around here. So where's the next place? <laughs> Oswald is in seen at the voter registrar's office. Mm-hmm. Now, what they didn't know is that CORE, which was a civil rights organization, was planning a voting registration drive in the Clinton-Jackson area. This was a, a black civil rights group right. you know, to try and get more black people to sign up to vote. So when Sean Ferry show up at the voter registration drive, there's literally scores of people around, and they all notice this big black Cadillac, this tall, distinguished guy, you know, and this weird-looking guy, because Ferry had a very bizarre appearance because he had this skin disease, which caused his hair to fall out. So he had this plastered-on wig and painted-on eyebrows. And there's this one guy, one white guy, there was actually another guy, Estes Morgan, but there were so few of them that they stood out like a sore thumb, in line waiting to sign up to vote. So because there's so much suspicion going on between both sides, the registrar of voters asked the local sheriff, John Manchester, to go over to the driver of the car and see who he is. And so Manchester went over, and the guy said, I'm from the International Trademark. My name's Clay Sean. So when he asked him for an ID, you know, he produced it, and it matched up. So we didn't question him anymore. You know, and he told them, well, they're from New Orleans. This guy says he's from the International Trademark, which I don't know what the heck it is, but it matches with his ID. So then Oswald goes ahead and talks to the registrar named Henry Palmer, and he asks him, Palmer asks him, well, what are you doing here? He goes, well, I'm going to register to vote. And he says, well, where do you live around here? He goes, I live with this doctor <laughs> over at the hospital. And I think that Palmer said that he said that the guy was a Dr. Uh, Silva. Now, remember, this is about 90 minutes north of New Orleans. Uh-huh. Oswald does not have any kind of affiliation with any medical facility that uh-huh. we've ever been able to find. When the House Select Committee found the roster of doctors at that hospital, guess what? <laughs> Silva was on it. Yeah. So the question then becomes... How the heck did Oswald know that that guy was there? It's a very curious question. Right. So Manchester tells him, well, look, you don't have to sign up to vote here. I mean, there's people working in that hospital who don't even live in the state, you know. And so with that, Oswald did an about face, walked out of his office, and when Palmer went downstairs, he asked a couple girls what happened. He goes, well, he got in the Cadillac and drove off. And so then they stopped at some local courthouse, all right, and a, a witness there who saw him and shot at the courthouse uh, said that they were figuring out where the hospital was. And so what did they do? Oswald ends up at the hospital. And there's about four witnesses who remember him filing an application there. No one's ever been able to figure out what really was going down here. Something very odd was. You, but, you can, you yeah. can only theorize yeah. what happened. Yeah. But here's my point. There is not one trace of this, not one, in the entire 26 volumes 
of the Warren Commission. Yeah. Now, 19,000 pages, and they didn't <laughs> think that that was important? The other, the other course is that the FBI covered it up, which I think is the case. The FBI, because they understood the importance of relating uh, Oswald with Sean Ferry, they decided to cover it up, and that's what I think happened. We are going to leave it there, as Amy Goodman would say, but we're not going to stop the discussion. This will be this will be held over into our next week's program. But doggone it, we run out of time today. I can assure you we will finish this discussion. In the meantime, we'd like to hear your feedback on this topic. Feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. This is Radio Parallax, and we'll see you next week at the same time.